Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. So good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I'm Pastor Hector, and I am excited to be here with you today. Thank you to Pastor Jordan Suzanne for the opportunity to open up God's Word. I absolutely love it. I love God's Word, and I'm very excited to get into it today. Now, also, I'll have to ask you to indulge me here a bit. If in our time together, if the Holy Spirit prompts me to ask everyone to go down on bended knee and to pray for the errors or the penalties that we endure in life, I need you to know it has nothing to do with the World Cup. It has nothing to do with the World Cup. No, that is a lesser goal of mine today is to make it to this afternoon without the outcome of that match being spoiled. But the greater goal today is to see Jesus in his word. Amen? And so today we're going to continue in our Christmas sermon series titled Seeing the Sun. This is part three of Seeing the Sun. And we've been exploring the impact of Jesus' arrival in all seasons of our lives. Amen? You see, God saw fit in his infinite wisdom to send his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, into humanity as a baby... And from there to grow in favor and in stature before God and men to ultimately become the Savior of the world. Folks, the birth of Jesus, it changed everything. And a couple of weeks back, Pastor Ron showed us how Jesus' birth ushers, ushers us into sanctification. And then the week after, Pastor Jamie showed us how Jesus' birth ushered us into deliverance. Give it up for these two, because those were solid words. And today, we're going to explore this word right here, redemption. Redemption. So let me pray before we jump in. Father, in Jesus' name, I declare, there is no one like you. Lord, you are our Redeemer. And I ask, God, that you would be glorified as we position ourselves to receive the impartation of your word by your spirit. Be glorified in every single heart and mind seated in this room and also those who are watching online or listening at a later time. Be glorified in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get on the same page. The definition of redemption is this. The action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. A second definition says this, the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. We have to know that as sinners, we have created a debt that we cannot pay. Okay, we have broken God's laws. We have not upheld his perfect standards. We have rejected the holiness of God. And if we are to receive the fullness of everything that God has for us in Christ, there needs to be a writing of the scales. Redemption. 
So here's our big idea that I want us to carry through with us in our time together. If you're taking note, write this down. We're not only called to receive our redemption from Christ, we're also called to represent our redemption in Christ. I'm going to say it again. We're not only called to receive our redemption from Christ, we're also called to represent our redemption in Christ. And we're going to unpack this idea through a variety of scriptures today, but we're going to start in Luke. Okay, we're actually we're going to start in the quintessential Christmas chapter, Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, if you have an electronic device, we're on U Version. You can follow us there. Or you could just look at the screen or the TV. You see how we, we serve you guys. I hope you guys see that. We're trying to serve you as best as we can. But here's a little bit about Luke that I absolutely love. Luke was a physician, okay? So that means he was trained in the art of keen observation. And I love the fact that when you read Luke's account of the life of Jesus, he adds these wonderful little details that just help paint a powerful picture. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 40, uh, it's quite a number of verses, so I won't be advancing them here uh, on the TV, but you can follow along on the screen. Here's where we find ourselves. Jesus has been born, and it doesn't say how much time, but it's probably a matter of days, maybe weeks. Uh, Mary and Joseph, the mother and father of Jesus, take Jesus to the temple to observe the customary laws that Jewish people were called to observe once they had a child. And so in Jerusalem, at the temple, is where we pick up in verse 25. This is what the Bible says. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Watch. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his mother, excuse me, and his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be, may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advancing years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were, watch, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Beautiful story. So in this passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 40, we meet these two beautiful individuals, Simeon and Anna. Simeon, he would not die before he saw the Messiah. That was a promise of God to him. And by the Spirit, he, re he recognized the Messianic child, and he blessed God. And then Anna came near at that very hour, and she also recognized the child and began to thank God and speak about the babe. And I'm, I'm going I'm to go ahead and put it to you like this. To me, these were two Old Covenant legends. Listen, these two are Old Covenant legends. It could be argued that they were a prime example of people walking according to the Old Covenant. They were devout, righteous. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Simeon. Anna had the gift of prophecy. I mean, she was faithful to the temple. She was worshiping, praying, and fasting day and night. Hear me when I tell you, these two were Old Covenant legends. OCGs. OCGs. And I love Luke's attention to these details that he shares with us, especially by placing these two, a man and a woman, by the way, back pocket that, by placing these two old covenant legends right there on the precipice of what was giving away right then and there. For the new covenant to come as they saw the Messiah. Isn't that brilliant? It's an absolute beautiful picture of the old covenant giving way to the new covenant. Come on, somebody. That's good. And so I think what Luke is emphasizing to us is their heart posture towards Jesus. You see, Simeon and Anna, they were both looking and hoping for God to do something for Israel. So in a very practical and powerful way, Simeon and Anna modeled the right and necessary posture for one who is waiting for the first advent. Advent meaning arrival. For the first advent of Christ. This was their posture. They were longing longing for God's redemption. And they acted on it. I mean, Simeon and Anna, they acted on this longing for redemption. Think of it this way. Simeon, you know, it was on his bucket list, right? It was on his bucket list. Hey, I ain't going to be going until these eyes right here be knowing that I done seen the Lord. Right? I mean, how many people have that on their bucket list? He 
what, he had a passion-filled patience, right? And Anna, Anna, talk about commitment, right? Actually, courage-laced commitment from after seven years after her husband passed, she was a widow in the temple until age 84. She was committed. She was devoted. She was just a beautiful picture of devotion. And she had this commitment that was laced with courage because you know she was running the risk, right? She was running the risk, you know, as she was faithfully praying in the temple like this. And then, you know, a new family moved into Jerusalem and the, you know, temple kids, they were showing the new kid on the block the ropes. And you know that they were walking by and saying to that kid, hey, and that is a crazy lady. <laughs> That's how I visualize Anna. She was just there, faithful, committed, full of courage and passion. This is awesome. And so... Processing all of that led me to this question. Side note, if you're new to Christianity, I'm going to ask you to take my word for it, that it's all over the New Testament and Jesus says it himself, that he will one day return again. Okay? So in other words, there will be a second advent. So with that being said, I had this question in my mind and I want to read it because I don't want to botch it. So... If Simeon and Anna longed for the first advent of Christ, who would bring in bodily form the redemption of Jerusalem, what do we? What do we who live in the era after Christ's birth, after his life, after his death, after his resurrection, we who now have redemption in Christ, what do we long for in, a, in anticipation of the second coming, this second advent? And may I submit to you that it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. We are too long for God's redemption. Hear me, friends. We are in the time between the times. And our hearts need to continue to long for God's redemption. Here's an illustration that I hope helps. I am a homeowner, okay? My house is my house. If I want to walk around with tube socks and sandals, I can do that because it's my house. I own my house, right? I have made my house my own according to my approved preferences. <laughs> approved. She's such a good woman. I love her so much. Okay? And I operate with an ownership mentality over my house. Yet, technically, legally, financially, I won't own, own my house for quite a number of years. Why? Because technically, legally, financially, my home belongs to a bank. Yet, I'm the owner. You guys with me? I'm 
the owner. We have an agreed upon partnership, me and the bank, that allows me to walk out the completion of my ownership until the day of my ownership, a day worth longing for, right? Do you see the parallel here? And so the same can be said about redemption. Actually, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And so there is this idea that redemption serves us both in noun form and also verb form. And that's me as an English major talking to you. But hear me, for the believer, for the believer, you have redemption in Christ all while he is actively redeeming aspects of your life and doing redeeming acts through your life. Do you guys see this? My three kids, they go to the rock school. And I love the vision statement of the rock school. This is what the vision statement of the Rock School says. It says this. To make disciples of Jesus who possess the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to courageously cooperate with God in the work of redeeming the world. Powerful words. Great vision statement. And so what I want you guys to see is that, yes, our redemption has been fulfilled. Here is Colossians chapter 1 that shows us that our redemption has been fulfilled. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So though we are redeemed in Christ, redemption continues. It continues. Here are a few verses that suggest just that. In him we have redemption. That's established. But I want you to see how this language grows, how it grows into the future. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Has time been full yet? No, time is not full yet. To unite all things in him. Has Christ united all things in him? Not yet. So we see here very clearly that redemption is this ongoing quality. Here's another verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have Christ. Now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Hear me, church. We have redemption in Christ, but it's only going to get better. Amen. 
Amen to that. One more, yeah? Luke chapter 21, okay? And then they will, this is Jesus, hold on, let me set the stage here. Okay. Jesus himself is now going to address the issue, right? He's talking to his disciples about the future. So listen to this. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So the scriptures are abundantly clear that redemption is both present and full while also being ongoing and filling. Do you guys see this? Ongoing and filling. So back to our main idea. All right, we covered the first part, so let's zero in on the second part. We're also called to represent our redemption in Christ. So let's ask ourselves this question. What does representing our redemption in Christ, what does that look like? Okay? Simeon and Anna, they acted on their longing for redemption, so how should we act? And, you know, me being a little bit of a Bible nerd, I have created an acronym because they're bite-sized and memorable and super helpful. Um, but before we get to that acronym, which will hopefully be very practical for you, I wanted to set the stage by speaking to the gravity with which I believe we are to approach these acts that showcase our redemption. Earlier, I read to you out of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, but there was a word in a neighboring verse that stood out to me, and I want to spend some time there to lay this groundwork from these, for these practical things that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. Let's look at that a little bit closer. Propitiation comes from the Greek word hilasterion. Took me a while to practice that. Hilasterion. And there is such a depth of meaning to this word that I believe will help undergird these practical things that we are about to do to showcase our redemption. Propitiation, propitiation means this, the appeasement which makes it possible for a just God to forgive sinners. When the Bible speaks of propitiation, it is talking about the appeasement of God's rightful anger at sin. Now, that makes people a little uneasy, right? There's a mindset that goes around the world that says something like this. Isn't God supposed to be loving? Like, why would he ever be angry at anyone's sin, right? Maybe some of you have confronted that mindset. But you have, to, you have to pause and ask yourself this question. Is anger really the opposite of love? 
For example, I have kids. You guys know that? Okay. If someone were to harm my kids, and then in turn I simply smiled at the attacker, said, hey, no worries. It doesn't matter. I hope your hand's okay. You would not be left with the impression that I love my kids. In that situation, in that situation, anger is not opposed to my love. It's actually proof of my love. And so in the same way, when we say, when we sin against God and sin against others, anger towards that sin is the right response of a perfectly loving God. And as such, a propitiation must be offered if that anger is to be satisfied. But the wonder, the wonder of the gospel is that God does not demand that propitiation from us. He offers it himself. It's beautiful. So that word propitiation contains beautiful and helpful theology. It should undergird these practices that we're about to get into. And if we neglect it, instead of embracing it, we lose the certainty that evil angers God. Injustice angers God. Abuse angers God. Greed, selfishness, pride, deceitfulness, and so on and so forth, it angers God. And we also lose sight of the fact that this word offers us this, is that we lose sight of the joy of what God has done. 1 John 4.10 says it best. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for, <laughs> for, for our sins. It's beautiful. We have to tap into those realities that, the word, like a, that a word like propitiation offers us. It helps us to know that redemption was costly for God and it's free for us. Redemption was costly for God and it's free for us. So with that gravity of what God in Christ has offered us, in and through redemption. Back to our question, what does representing our redemption look like? I've come up with an acronym, ACTS. I thought it was fitting, okay? This series is kind of uh, loosely connected to Exodus chapter 6, where there's four or five I will statements that God makes to the nation of Israel. Regarding redemption, he says, I will redeem you through Mighty acts. And I thought, okay, I like that word. I like that word. And then I thought about, okay, who are the first people to receive the redemption in Christ and then ultimately have to begin walking out and showcasing their, their, their redemption? And I thought, oh, the believers in the early church. And all of their accounts were recorded in the book of Acts. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just a total nerd. <laughs> I was in bed. I was like, Um, my wife tolerates me. I love it. I love it. So here's our acronym. Let's begin with letter A. We're going to showcase our redemption first with 
appreciation. Man, you can, you can talk about this every Sunday in church. It's that significant. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, it says this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere. See, some of you would benefit from simply being more appreciative, more thankful in your homes, in your relationships, in your job. It would benefit you. Listen, I know that it can be tough in any sector of life. But being thankful is how you triumph. Being thankful is how you triumph. And when you triumph, despite whether or not those around you see you or empathize with you or sympathize for you, your thankfulness is what leads you to triumph. And then from there, you spread the knowledge of him everywhere. You're set apart. You look different. You talk different. You think different. All because of this foundation of appreciation. That's you participating in the work of redeeming the world. Let's look at the next one. Letter C, consecration. Now we're going to hang out here a little bit. Because for me, consecration is absolutely vital. If we are to showcase our redemption to the world, it has to be authentic for us. It doesn't work any other way. If we step out foolishly, we risk placing another black mark on the church. So this is utterly important. So we're going to camp out here a little bit. And we're going to ask it this question to kind of explore this idea of consecration. The question is this, what is a disciple? Seems like Christianity 101, right? But let's look at the, the easy definition. I believe there's two definitions. Let's look at the easy definition first, and then we'll get to the harder one next. The word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulos, discipulos, and it means someone who learns and follows. Learns and follows. Now, it's evident that it's quite impossible to follow, to, to follow someone who no longer is walking the earth. Right? You guys with me? It's quite impossible to follow someone who is no longer walking the earth. But Jesus was followed by many people, multitudes of people. And yet not all of them were disciples. You see that? To be a disciple is one who has to listen to his teachings, learn from his teachings, and apply his teachings into our lives. That's the easy definition of what it is to be a disciple. But there's more to being a disciple that Jesus shows us here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. So first, let's look at denying ourselves. 
About 10 chapters later, we get a clearer illustration of what, it's, what it means to deny. You guys know the story. Jesus has been arrested. He's being tried by the religious leaders of his day. And Peter is outside in the courtyard. People spot Peter. They approach Peter. And they accuse him of being with Jesus three separate times. And what does he do? Peter denies Jesus all three times. He goes on to say, I do not know the man. The word deny there is the same one that we saw 10 chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 16. Okay, stay with me. So when Jesus says to be a disciple, one must deny himself, it's as if he was saying what Peter will do to me, you must do to yourself. What he will do to me, you must do to yourself. So if there's an aspect of your life that Jesus is actively or wanting to redeem, and in order to do so, he's calling you to deny it as a disciple. Your response to that area of your life needs to be, I do not know that man. I don't know that side of myself anymore. I don't know who I used to be anymore. I do not know that man. That, ladies and gentlemen, is redemptive consecration. And secondly, Jesus said that the disciple must take up his cross. Now, in our culture, sadly and unfortunately, excuse me, that has been turned into kind of like a flippant saying, you know, oh, we all have our cross to bear. <laughs> and we're talking about like not being able to find the right pillow for a persistent neck pain. Oh, we all have our cross to bear. And we joke around like that because we've never seen someone crucified. But I can guarantee you that the disciples in Rome-occupied Israel, they saw someone crucified. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, this must have been shocking to the disciples, terrifying to the disciples. Because someone being crucified on a cross was deliberately made to be cruel to send a message to anybody who walked by. The message was this, hey, no matter how terrible your life is, it's not worth risking this. That's how cruel and brutal the cross was. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, he was saying, you have to go there. You have to go there. You have to be willing to die to yourself, to endure hardship, because that's where I'm going. Our crosses will be different, but we have to carry them and walk. Carry them and walk with no plans of returning. 
We are to follow Jesus no matter how difficult or painful it might be. Why? Because here's the end result. In the next verse, Jesus continues and says, for whoever would save his life We have to count the cost. Can you forsake some of the things that Jesus is telling you to sacrifice? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we as disciples, we have to ask ourselves, do I believe him? Do I believe him that I will find it? The life that he has laid out for me. Are his words trustworthy? Is my life safe in his hands? And hear me, church. The answer is an emphatic yes. An emphatic yes. A couple more. T for transparency. I thought this was beautiful. Listen, in an era where AI and robots are producing more work, more content, more products, transparency that is soaked in vulnerability, it speaks to an authenticity that cannot be artificially generated. It can't be. Transparency leads to this authenticity and vulnerability that we as disciples of Christ need. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because who is in your life? Christ. So we still and always value the person who is transparent and vulnerable because Christ's presence and his power is there in those moments. People who hide things or share half-truths or paint themselves in a way that favors them or is more sympathetic to them, they're denying the power of Christ. And it'll either be discovered or it'll continue to be tolerated. We must be willing, hear me friends, to tear down invisible walls and get real with one another. It is an essential part of courageously cooperating in the work of redeeming the world. Last one, S for support. Support. The first Three of these uh, focus on the individual believer. But this one, this one really focuses on others. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so 
fulfill the law of Christ. My wife and I, we were at a dinner with some friends recently. Great conversation, great time. And one of our friends shared how when they made a career-changing decision years back, they really felt inadequate. They felt inadequate. They were filled with anxiety and fear. They thought they were going to mess the whole thing up. But they applied themselves. And this individual went on to say how it was in large part because of the support of those who were sitting there at that table. And I sat there and I was brought to tears hearing what was coming out of their heart. It blessed me and it reminded me that that was kingdom. And so I ask you, friends, are you aware of struggles or burdens or difficulties or inadequacies that someone close to you is facing? Are you aware? Do you care? Are you doing for them what you would appreciate being done to you if the tables were turned? We should be actively looking for these opportunities, opportunities of support. Our friend ended that story by saying, they are in such a better place, full of confidence, executing their job with excellence, all because of some of the support that she received from people at that table. Do you see the difference? Do you see how the supportive help helped? Changed person, confident, reassured. I loved it. It was a beautiful picture of the kingdom. And we should actively be looking for these opportunities because they are a fulfillment of the law of Christ. They are the work that is in step with God redeeming the world. So our idea has been this. We're not only called to receive our redemption from Christ, we're also called to represent our redemption in Christ. And I want to encourage you and challenge you today as you conclude this year and make preparations to begin 2023. Let's represent our redemption through acts. Let's make a commitment. Let's represent what we freely received. Amen? And I'll leave you with this one last thought. The same person, Isaiah, who prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14, by saying, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us is the same person, the same person, the God-man who in Matthew chapter 8 verse 20 said these words at the end of Matthew 28 verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, we are not alone. We are not alone. We are in Christ 
in order to showcase the redemption that he has offered us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word that brings life to our souls. In this moment, Lord, I pray that you would move upon hearts, especially those who do not yet know you. They may have thought that they were casually attending a church service in the month of December. Maybe they've been away for a long time and thought it would be a good idea to get back. But I believe you have ordered their steps for this moment. And Lord, while believers are praying, I ask that you would press upon their hearts here and now. Let them know. Let them know that their Redeemer lives. If that's you in this place, with heads bowed low, if you would say that I'm in need of my Redeemer, I'm in need of my sins being redeemed and being called into the life that God has for me. If that's you, I want to pray for you. I want to invite you to simply raise your hand. I'll acknowledge it, and we'll go from there. If God has pressed it on your heart, amen, I see that hand. Thank you. You can put it down. If you know that your relationship with God is distant or non-existent, and you know that he's calling you in, that he longs to have a deep relationship with you. All you have to do is simply pray a prayer. And that's how the journey begins. One more opportunity. If that's you, simply raise your hand and we will pray. Amen. I see that hand. All right, those of you who raise your hand, join me in this prayer by repeating what I said or what I say. The congregation in a display of celebrating with the choice that you have made today, will also pray along with us. Father, in Jesus' name, I acknowledge my need of you. I am a sinful person. And I acknowledge, God, that I cannot save myself. So I'm asking you to save me to redeem my life, to cleanse me of my sins. I humble myself before you, and I say thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son for me. I receive you now, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. Lead me into all that you have for me, from this day forward. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Come on, church, give it up for these who raised their hands and responded to the gospel. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.